Good morning. Good morning. And welcome to Digitization, Representation, and Access. Uh, I am Sonia Hazard, stepping in for Paul Fife, who can't be here today. Um, Paul is an associate professor of English at NC State University, and he organized today's roundtable discussion. Paul envisioned a roundtable dedicated to tackling issues surrounding the politics and ethics of digitization and digital collections of cultural heritage materials. Paul posed five initial questions to inspire this session. Um, so, quoting him, one, how has the representation of different peoples, histories, and materials been shaped by the institutional prerogatives of digitization? Two, what might be done to address digitization's potential to create political imbalances or archival silences? Three, what kinds of productive relationships might digitization professionals seek to build with cultural heritage objects, communities of origin and use? Number four, how do the technical protocols and platforms of digitization shape the cultural horizons of what such materials purport to represent? And fifth and finally, what are the consequences of widespread or limited access to digital collections and what approaches might individuals and institutions take to building, communicating, and curating them? We are very lucky to have Professor Rebecca Hankins here to moderate our discussion of these and other concerns to the panelists and to you all, the audience members. Rebecca Hankins is an associate professor um, affiliated with Africana Studies and also an archivist, librarian, and curator at Texas A&M University. Among her many achievements, Professor Hankins was elected in 2016, a distinguished fellow at the Society of American Archivists. Um, also in 2016, she was appointed by President Obama to the National Historical Publications and Records Commission. Um, and I've been assured that that role is secure. <laughs> Um, her research and professional work centers on the African diaspora, women and gender studies, and popular culture as it relates to Muslims and Islam. Her latest publication is a book co-authored with Miguel Juarez titled, Where Are All the Librarians of Color? The Experiences of People of Color in Academia. Welcome, Professor Rebecca Hankins. Um, thank you, this is my pleasure. Um, yes, I'm always embarrassed about the uh, commission <laughs> appointment. Um, so I'm going to introduce our uh, participants, and they will have between five and eight minutes to uh, share their papers. And then after everyone has done their work, we will open it up to questions. So our first presenter is Dan Blem from Denison University, and his paper is called The Complete Package, Reissuing Albums, Reshaping Histories. Dan is an assistant professor of musicology at Denison University. He is also currently serving as a fellow at the University of Rochester's Humanities Center, where he is working on a book project on the role of sound in memorialization in the United States. Dan has also published on such topics as Adaption in Musical Theater, Bernard Herrmann's score to Vertigo, John Adams' 9-11 composition on the transmigration of souls, and music at the 26th inauguration. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. 
In the age of Napster, Spotify, and sampling, questions of access and digitization in music remain a perennial debate for music scholars. Such questions, of course, are not confined to the digital age. Indeed, the history of recorded music in the United States is fraught with these issues inherent in the commodification of culture. Perhaps nowhere has this been borne out most intensely than in the realm of folk culture, where questions of cultural ownership, representation, and commercial commodification are central to its genre and history. My research investigates the act of reissuing older material and how reissues can shape our understanding of cultural history. I've been inspired in this project particularly by museum studies, where critical attention has been paid to exhibitions' power to construct narratives. And I find reissuers of recordings play a similarly active rather than neutral role in how we continually construct meanings from music. My case study for this research has been the Anthology of American Folk Music, a three-volume double LP set uh, of, uh, uh, issued by Folkways Records in 1952. The Anthology of American Folk Music comprises a reissue of 84 commercial recordings made between 1926 and 1932, all selected, sequenced, and creatively annotated in very beautiful collage-like lighter notes by Harry Smith, an avant-garde collage artist and prolific record collector. The anthology was commissioned by Moses Ash, the founder of Folkways Records, and issued by Ash in 1952. The anthology was then reissued on compact disc in 1997 by the Smithsonian. There are then at least three layers to discovering how meanings were reshaped over the course of the anthology's history. Layer one, of course, is the original commercial production of the 84 tracks on the anthology. Scholars have noted how folk music has been the site of contestation over cultural ownership based on race, ethnicity, class, and geography. Frank Walker, a record executive for Columbia in the 1920s and 1930s, recalled in an interview how he and presumably other producers would rehearse and select repertoire with performers as well as make changes such as adding instruments, changing lyrics, or even rewriting the music in order to increase its marketability. Scholars, including David Wisnant, Carl Hagstrom Miller, and others, have chronicled the ways in which folk collectors continually edited and curated their collections to fit their own aesthetic ends. Layer two is Smith's work as a record collector, anthologist, and annotator. In the 1940s, a subculture of record collecting began among mostly white, highly educated blues and jazz fans. Mary Beth Hamilton and other scholars have critically examined how mythologies of race shaped these collectors who sought pure examples of black voices untouched by commercial music. Critic John Dugan has posited that these collectors were also, quote, guided by their bohemian refusal of what they saw as the egregious commerciality of rock and roll, an aesthetic distinction which allowed them to wed the collecting of obscure vernacular musics to anti-consumerist ethics. Smith's interest in old records echoed his contemporaries in that he also set out records that he considered exotic compared to the popular tastes of the day. But Smith was far less essentializing or discerning in his definition, freely admitting both white artists and commercial recordings into his collection. Moreover, Smith's selection and sequencing of tracks for the anthology deliberately obscured racial lines. Whites as well as blacks play the blues, a white and a black artist each sing about John Henry, uh, and Furry Lewis, a black artist, performs a white-associate ballad about Casey Jones. Such choices were intentional, as Smith remarked in an interview, quote, 
Before the anthology, there had been a tendency in which records were lumped into blues catalogs or hillbilly catalogs, and everyone was having blindfold tests to prove they could tell which was which. There's, that's why there's no... It's, it's totally true. That's, uh, it was part of the hallmark of being like uh, a collector, as you could, you could tell just by listening whether that person was black or not. Um, that's why there's no indications of that sort, color or racial, in the albums. I wanted to see how well certain jazz critics did on the blindfold test, and they all did horribly. It took years before anyone discovered that Mississippi John Hurt wasn't a hillbilly. Smith also critiqued the segregated marketing practices in the, uh, in the liner notes, and elsewhere in the notes, he displays a fascination with the technologic present. Uh, liner notes, for instance, are transformed into telegraph messages that summarize the lyrics, um, and there are advertisements of sort of musical gadgetry like harmonica holders or how to play the banjo, um, uh, which, you know, this is a far cry from Dugan's comments about collectors desiring to combat the commercialism of rock and roll. Um, it's clear from Smith's approach that he harbored no illusions about the past being distant, disconnected from, or even superior to the present. And layer three is the Smithsonian's process of reissuing the anthology on CD, much of which can thankfully be traced through archival documents housed at the Smithsonian. Minutes, memos, and other communications reveal how the Smithsonian developed marketing and press strategies, remastered tracks, reproduced and updated liner notes, um, selected a cover design from five choices uh, and solicited notes from different luminaries and just for the sake of time I'm going to talk briefly about the process of constructing the notes that accompanied the reissue the Smithsonian sought notes from a highly varied list of celebrities including musicians like Laurie Anderson Ornette Coleman, Beck and Bob Dylan uh, author Thomas Pynchon photographer Robert Frank and writer intellectual Omari Baraka Unsurprisingly, the notes that they received were much smaller than the uh, you know, goal of all these famous people. Um, but even the Smithsonian exercised a careful editorial hand. Notes that were critical of the anthology were not included, such as Samuel Charter, who's one of the contemporaries of Smith as a record collector, who wrote in, quote, why do you want to propagate the myth of Harry Smith? He wasn't doing anything that anyone else wasn't doing at the time. That note, surprisingly, was not included. <laughs> <laughs> Ronnie Singh, the director of the Harry Smith archives, singled out, in fact, only one note that required editing. This was Stephen Taylor's note. Taylor noted the uh, Taylor's note critiqued the racial and commercial exploitation inherent in these older recordings, condemning, quote, the increasing consolidation and monopolization uh, uh, of the musical mass media by Tin Pan Alley, a group of mostly white men, most of whom had no direct experience uh, of African or European American folk music, and many of whom had never ventured outside New York City, but who had the business acumen uh, to um, sorry, um, the business acumen to monopolize the national publishing, performance, and broadcast media with their catalog of hit songs periodically refreshed by the selective appropriation of Negro and hillbilly affects. Ultimately, however, the note was dropped entirely. Indeed, only one note used by the Smithsonian was edited. Eric von Schmidt's note offered a romantic, personal recollection of his introduction to folk music through the anthology, concluding, quote, most of the smitten folkies were in their late teens and they're 10 years older. Uh, I was still mourning the fact that Lead Belly had died before I could meet him. The note he contributed, however, continued on to characterize this group of folkies as, quote, a middle white class brunch of kids chalking up little discoveries on the slates of their young lives. Uh, 
So all three layers reveal the curatorial power behind issuing and reissuing recorded music, for example, the way record producers Smith and the Smithsonian all tell different stories about race in American folk music. Moreover, such motives, whether political or aesthetic, not that the two can ever be fully disentangled, are typically hidden from the consumer's view. Interviews, speeches, editorial notes, and archival documents demonstrate just some of the ways that accounts of institutions can help hold them accountable. Our next speaker is Eleanor Jane Reeds from the University of Connecticut. Her topic is Digitizing the Corpus, Responsible Representation of Female Bodies in Literary Archives. Eleanor is a PhD candidate in the Department of English at the University of Connecticut where her dissertation research focuses on how genre mediated the relationship between textual voices and readers in the 19th century. Eleanor has published in a range of journals, including Victorian Review, 20th Century Literature, and Children's Literature, Children's Literature Association Quarterly, while her archival projects have included an online exhibition of the British Revival poet John Temple's working papers. They just said PowerPoint, which is important, I promise. <laughs> it's very hard to talk about digitization sometimes without the digital tools we have immediately in front of us as presenters. Um, so thank you to Sonia, Paul, and Rebecca for organizing, chairing, and moderating today's panel. Um, so I'm going to be talking about what we mean when we say we're digitizing the corpus, and, and specifically thinking about responsible representations of female bodies in literary archives. The female body has long been a medium through which literary texts emerge. In the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, for example, Gertrude Stein as author ventriloquizes Alice Toklas as her typewriting amanuensis, an amanuensis who claims that it is the painstaking daily task of typing rather than only reading that allows one to tell what a book is. In the 21st century, literary texts continue to reach their readers through the physical actions of mostly female copyists. As we spy the bejeweled and manicured fingers, for instance, at the edges of images collected online as the art of Google Books. If digital texts can thus foreground the fleshly human lives from which they might often seem to float free, how might digital archives allow us to encounter the bodies of not only female transcribers, copyists, and digitizers, but also female producers or creators of literature? Before fingers were isolated individually through the practice of typing, making it a quintessentially digital method of mediation, the manuscript bore the marks of writing tools held in the hand, Marks, in fact, reproduced in my choice of PowerPoint template, Inkwell. The paradox of digital archives, which offer visual and textual representations of manuscripts through images and transcriptions, 
is that these archives have allowed a far greater number of readers to access such bodily marks while removing the necessity of an embodied encounter with these very artifacts. For example, a range of Emily Dickinson scholars have drawn our attention to her writing practice as intensely involved in material properties and processes. Among others, Virginia Jackson has made a compelling case for an archival and reading practice that counters the lyric reading that has actively cultivated a disregard for the circumstances of Emily Dickinson's manuscript circulation by assuming that the text of a poem must be separable from its artifact. Such critics have shared their insights with us in journal articles and monographs that include reproductions of objects in the archive. These reproductions offer us a visual encounter with the materiality of pen and paper while simultaneously depriving us of any tactile encounter, calling into question the very endeavor to recognize the concrete nature of composition that they're designed to support. I want to consider today how digital reproduction and archiving practices can avoid erasing bodies, especially female bodies. My goal is to offer a few models of best practice for rendering material, idiosyncratic, and handmade documents that make the most of the feminist possibilities of digital archives in allowing editors to resist and also to expose the containment of female writers and their literary products. Jacqueline Wernermont has pointed out that, quote, while digital archives were envisaged as the answer to women's exclusion from the power relations that constituted literary archives, we have yet to pass the relationships between gender and the tools central to digital archives. I want to respond to this challenge by exploring how digital archiving can, rather than abstracting texts from their material instantiations through transcription and encoding, instead can use such tools to make visible and tactile the female bodies that created such texts. My first model of best practice is the Godwin Shelley Archive and one of its more productive features. The option to distinguish between Mary and Percy Bysshe Shelley's handwriting in the manuscripts of Frankenstein. Here, Mary's handwriting is isolated, visible in red in the transcription. And here, I have toggled the transcription view at the top here um, to isolate Percy's amendments to his wife's novel, again in red. I could have chosen much more extensive examples of what we might describe more neutrally as the Shelley's collaborative approach to early drafts of the novel. Manuscripts bear witness not only to the text that they preserve, but to the material practices of production and dissemination in which different bodies have been involved. A transcription protocol that enables us to recognize this can invite feminist readings of female-authored texts that have been mediated by male editors, recovering here Mary Shelley's original text and identifying the possible goals and tenor of her husband's amendments. My next example is Wolf Online, a digital archive of the 1927 novel To the Lighthouse. More specifically, I want to highlight the decision of the Wolf Online editors to transcribe the characteristically sloping lines of Virginia Woolf's handwriting rather than correcting their far-from-print-friendly gradients. Um, a decision that also avoids straightening out, quite literally, a queer writer. 
Wolf Online provides transcriptions that are intuitive representations committed to reproducing the mise-en-page. The archive also enables users to layer images and transcriptions. It's the same page as the previous one. Allowing for a detailed analysis of the handmade documents, as the opacity slider tool means that one can engage with both the editorial apparatus and the original manuscript at the same time with extraordinary ease. The editors have deciphered the text for us, but we do not have to regard such an aid in isolation from the manuscript or as a replacement for it in this archive. We might observe that I've drawn both of my examples from author-specific archives in which project leaders have developed their own tools and conventions. For instance, the content management system for Wolf Online was initially designed for that archive, although it has also been adapted for a Thomas Hardy novel. Wernermont identifies, quote, the proliferation of recovery projects as indexical, pointing to the ongoing struggle to give voice to women's work and to develop digital methodologies adequate to the challenges of feminist theories. I regard the innovative representations of Frankenstein and to the lighthouse in these archives in a similar light. These digital archives appear to have built their apparatus for the materials in question, materials that bear the mark of female hands. Without attempting to draw on existing models for digital archiving that might efface such marks. It is particularly in the development of transcription conventions and text encoding where our responsibility as editors lies in order to provide an apparatus for representing documents in ways that are more conducive to reading, searching, and manipulation, while at the same time retaining a sense of such documents' uniquely corporeal form. These are a few other people I couldn't quite fit in today, but I wanted to put them up. Um, this, I would argue, is an emancipatory project rooted in fem feminist principles, um, and I look forward to discussing today how such a project and other similar initiatives might be furthered by us all. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Charles Wellskull from West Virginia University. Um, Chuck, as he says to call, is a, doctoral, is a doctoral candidate in the Department of History at West Virginia University. His dissertation, Breaking and Remaking the Mason-Dixon Line, Loyalty as a Cultural Process in the Civil War Era, Mid-Atlantic, 1850 to 1900, explores how a wide range of actors, African and white Americans, unionists and Confederate men and women, navigated the complexities of loyalty during the last half century of the 19th century, making and remaking definitions of allegiance before, during, and after the war. In addition to his doctoral research, Chuck has published in West Virginia history and worked as a digital intern at the Ford's Theater Society in Washington, D.C. on the Remembering Lincoln Digital History Project. Good morning, everybody. Uh, 
Thank you all for being here uh, at 9 o'clock in the morning on uh, Saturday uh, for our conference. Uh, and thank you to Sonia uh, and Rebecca and everyone. Uh, I want to echo the same sentiments. Uh, very happy to be here. And I'm going to take us in a completely different direction. Right? I'm an historian. I'm not music, not literary. So we're going in a slightly different direction. Uh, and with that, I, I, as a social and cultural historian, I can't not ground the start of this in something with a person. Right? Uh, so... In the, in the evening hours of July 18th, 1863, David Demas and his brother-in-law, Jacob Christie, uh, gathered with the members of the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry Regiment outside Fort Wagner. Uh, Fort Wagner stands guarding uh, or guarded the city of Charleston, the harbor of Charleston, the virtual seat of the rebellion during the Civil War. Uh, made famous by the movie Glory, uh, this regiment, the 54th Massachusetts, drew together African Americans from across the North. Uh, from Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, and even small Mercersburg, Pennsylvania, where David Demas and Jacob Christie came from. Uh, Demas and Christie would participate in the assault, uh, which would fail on Fort Wagner. This isn't a military history. It's not my military history class. I won't bore you with what happens. Uh, David Demas does get wounded in the battle. He's shot in the head. He survives. Uh, it's a wound that will plague him for the rest of the war. He still serves until June of 1865, uh, when he's released from service. Uh, but him and his brother-in-laws, uh, Jacob Christie, William Christie, uh, along with Mary Christie, turned Mary Demas, who marries David, uh, provide a series of letters about the Civil War experience of these African Americans. Uh, they fight for the Union, for their freedom, uh, but they also fight for their rights uh, as second-class citizens in the Union Army. Uh, Jacob Christie would go on to say at one point, if they don't pay us, we will get troublesome on their hand. If we can't get, get our rights, we will die trying for them. I think there's a slight double meaning there, right? On one hand, uh, African-American soldiers are paid less than, union, uh, than white Union soldiers. Uh, Jacob, I think, is talking to some degree about wanting to fight uh, be problemsome for the Union officials if they don't get their money, but also they're willing to die for their rights in the North or in the South, fighting for their freedom. Uh, now, I think this comes unintentionally at a really good time to talk about Civil War, 19th century African Americans, uh, considering contemporary events, right? I didn't plan on NFL protests or the events that happened in Charlottesville or the continuing and frustrating debate on Confederate monuments uh, when I proposed this paper back last December. Uh, but I think it's timely to talk about African Americans in digital archives. Because uh, David Demas and Jacob Christie uh, are really the only African-American voices that come from the University of Virginia's Valley of the Shadow project. Uh, if you haven't checked this out, it's a fantastic digital website. Uh, it's something I've used for my dissertation, uh, and if I stray, I hope not too far into talking about my dissertation as I go through this. Uh, this is limited time, right? So historians love to talk about their work. Uh, but there are plenty of references to African-Americans on the Valley of the Shadow site. But there's very few African-American voices on, and, and I'm, this is not to take away from how awesome this site is. It's been still used for about 20 years. Uh, it is an amazing site that compares Franklin County, Pennsylvania, and Augusta County, Virginia. But there are very few African-American sources that appear in this digital archive. Uh, and that shouldn't be surprising. Uh, African-American sources, by and large, from the 19th century are relatively silenced. They're relatively muted, right? They're, they're buried voices uh, that kind of slip through the cracks of 19th century history. Uh, I looked at several other sites uh, to complete this project uh, as part of my dissertation, as part of this talk. 
the Documenting the American South project, which uh, comp uh, comprises slave narratives, uh, usually fugitive slaves who escape from slavery, uh, and also uh, William Still's uh, record of fugitives. Uh, I don't think that's the quite uh, right title, but uh, it's by the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Uh, I wasn't going to mention Still until I was, I guess, visited by the ghost of Still as I walked around 12th Street back to my hotel. There's a <laughs> sign to where Still uh, boarded when he lived in Philadelphia. Uh, as an African-American abolitionist, he recorded all of the slaves that were coming into Philadelphia from Maryland, from Virginia, from Delaware, uh, as they were trying to escape to the institution of slavery, or escape from the institution of slavery. Sorry, that was a bad faux pas. Um, they're trying to escape from slavery. But the question is, with all of these digital sources, what can we do? Right, so this is also how I'm going in a slightly different direction than the previous talks. This is much more uh, of a think piece, I guess we could say, uh, to borrow slightly. What can we do uh, about African-American sources? Why, why are they so limited? Uh, and how can we uh, look to include them more in digital platforms? Uh, I, th I think this is an important question. Uh, one, I struggle with my, in my dissertation, uh, trying to include African-American voices uh, as they talk about loyalty, but also as African-Americans uh, talk about any topic, right? whether it's life moving around in 19th century America. The, if you haven't, again, checked out the Christie and Demas letters, they talk about a wide range of things. Uh, but again, a limited source. Uh, so again, this is where I think we can go, and I hope I have intended this to inspire questions and discussion, uh, rather than after thinking about this for a year, be anything definitive. Uh, but I want to model off of Martha Hodes's work. Uh, if anybody has ever heard of Martha Hodes, she's a professor at NYU. Uh, she wrote a book, Morning Lincoln, uh, that looks kind of similarly to what I do in some ways uh, at African-American and white American Unionist and Confederate responses to the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, but what she did in this work is she practiced what she called radical inclusion. Uh, it was this idea if you had two quotes, uh, one from an African-American source and one from a white source, regardless of if, if it's a unionist or a confederate, uh, and they said roughly the same thing. They're not going to say exactly the same thing, but if they say roughly the same thing, she would cite the African-American source and then note that white source, whether it's a unionist or confederate, in the footnote. Her intention, right, is in the text of her work to make African-American voices shine through more clearly, right? Rather than have a separate chapter that says this is African-American sources or this is the African-American experience, connect these sources to the actual narrative of mourning Lincoln, remembering Lincoln. Uh, so how does this connect to digital projects? Uh, I think I'm adapting this idea, I shouldn't say I think, I, I would suggest adapting this idea of radical inclusion, of finding ways to connect African-American sources uh, on sites like Valley of the Shadow, right? This has been the kind of the focal point of my study. Uh, you might be able to take Mary uh, Demas's or Mary Christie's letter uh, to her husband and David uh, Demas's letters about the raid on Chambersburg in 1864, uh, Confederate forces raid and burn the town of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, you could connect that to another letter on the website uh, that talks about uh, J. Kelly Burnett talks about the burning of Chambersburg and how he conveniently took a nap in the middle of uh, burning of Chambersburg, right? He just kind of fell asleep while the town burned and woke up and was like, oh my god, the town's on fire. How did that happen? Right? Because you just fall asleep during a military... Uh, that's a silly aside. Uh, but so you could do something like that, right? On, so on websites, digital archives that have both white and African-American sources, link those sources together, kind of, if they have similar topics, 
provide links together. Uh, again, this is very suggestive. Uh, another thing might be to provide, uh, if you take William Still's work, uh, you could link him to Sidney Howard Gaze, uh, counts the, in New York City, he's part of the Vigilance Committee. Uh, he references Still several times, he's recording the slaves that are coming in and where they're going, uh, either from Philadelphia or other places as part of the Underground Railroad. Or, and this may seem kind of cliche at a bibliography con uh, conference, maybe bibliography is the answer, right? Kind of providing uh, a range of sources like, hey, this is a, a, a white soldier or white family that talks about these uh, events, whether it's about sanitary commissions or uh, military combat, provide lists of references about other digital materials, digital sites, uh, to provide these links. Uh, to highlighting African-American voices. I know this is very suggestive and a little bit different than I think what uh, two previous panelists did, but I hope it inspires some good discussion on how we can talk about African-American sources in the 19th century. Uh, I think I'm out of time, right? Thank you very much. All right, our last and final panelist is Sarah Warner from Rockville, Maryland. Sarah is a book historian and digital scholar based in Washington, D.C. She worked for nearly a decade at the Folger Shakespeare Library, teaching undergraduates and expanding the library's digital presence. Her book, Studying Early Printed Books, 1450 to 1800, A Practical Guide, will be out in the spring from Wiley Blackwell along with a companion open access website providing digital facsimiles and teaching resources. So I'm going to do the sort of Chuck Stell thing even broader. This is less about specific details and it's even it's cranky. Those of you who have encountered me before know that I have strong feelings about digital access. Um, so collaborating for an accessible past. The first thing to know is that you can't access it if it's not there, right? So what is there online? We have, this is the moment, 15 open access Shakespeare's first folios online um, with about another 20 at least in the wings waiting to be shared with the world. There are 25 digitized copies of the Gutenberg Bible, which is just about um, the entire range of extant complete copies of the Gutenberg Bible, so that's a lot. Those things get digitized over and over and over again, but there's a lot of works that never get digitized. So Pilgrim's Progress, we all know Pilgrim's Progress, right? Published first in 1678, and by the end of the 18th century, there are around 350 editions of that work. It spread across the globe. It was very influential up until today. The earliest open access digital facsimile I have found of Pilgrim's Progress is a lower resolution black and white copy of a 1731 edition. It was published first in 1678. That's a long gap if you want to look at the early representations of what is an incredibly influential text. There are other examples of things that were incredibly popular when they were first published, like Berlamont's Colloquies, which are these traveler's dictionaries, which again, hundreds and hundreds of editions by the time you get to the 18th century, and a tiny handful of high resolution, in fact, only three high res um, open access digitizations of that. 
John Marant's captivity narrative, which was originally given as his ordination sermon, was transcribed by William Aldridge and published in 1785. It was also turned into a poem by Samuel Whitchurch and published as well in 1785. John Marant was a... Um, a, a, a free black child preacher who had a sort of conversion and went into the wilderness at the age of 12 and was captured by Cherokees and then came back and then decided to um, came, came back and ended up in London. In any case, he, in 1785 he talked about his experience um, in the Marant himself published an authorized edition, so it was first published with two other people transcribing his, you know, in the way of these things, transcribing his words and sharing them with the world. He published an authorized edition with added texts and emendations to focus more explicitly on abolition. There are open access facsimiles of, Mar of um, Aldridge's edition. There is even of Whitchurch's poem of Marant's authorized version of it. Not a single one online. There are no early editions of Elizabeth Carey's Tragedy of Mariam, Elizabeth Carey being one of the um, handful of published women writers in the Renaissance. There are no early editions of Aphra Ben's work. In fact, similarly, there are no editions at all of Elizabeth Jocelyn's A Mother's Legacy, which is one of the early versions of um, in the genre of Mother's Laments, in which you address your unborn child and you hope that they they grow up. It was very popular when it was first published. There's no open access versions of it. So we have some things that are online, some things that are not online, but just because it's been digitized doesn't mean that it's accessible. To be accessible, you need partly to be able to find a work and you need to be able to use and, well, see the digitized images. Have you ever tried to look for work and you say, I know, I'm really interested in Astrophel and Stella. Let me see if I can find an early copy of it. And if you're like me and you're an independent scholar, you probably don't have access to the incredibly expensive commercial databases that we rely on for our research. How do you go about finding something like that? I spend a lot of time doing it. It's ridiculous. There's no centralized directories of digitized images for most of our fields. There are some that try to bring things together. DPLA is trying to kind of do that, but it's I'm having a hard time making headway, um, is I guess the way I'll phrase that. So first of all, you have to find the images, which is really hard to use. The images that are um, should be in the public domain are usually made available under restrictive licensing that says you can only use it for non-commercial uses or maybe it doesn't even say that and all you can do is look at them online. In my eyes that doesn't count as accessible. Um, there are too many instances of institutions allowing companies to digitize their holdings and release them as commercial databases that you then have to buy back access to. We can all, in our own fields, I think, probably come up with examples of that having happening, but that's locking up our past in a way that we don't have access to it. So often with those commercial things, you can't even see them, let alone reuse them in any sort of way. So access, you need to be able to find it, you need to be able to use it, but also access is being able to understand what it is that you are seeing. Most of the digitizations that we see of um, our collections online are really aimed at 
they're scholars of that matter, right? I'm pretty comfortable going into something that has lots of images of early printed English books. I know a fair amount about that. I know what I'm seeing. I'm on slightly less firm ground when I'm looking at, I don't know, Dutch books, which I know a lot less about, but there are a lot of them, and there's actually a lot of them that are um, open access. It's really fun to look at those. They're well cataloged. Access is understanding, and who are we digitizing for is one of the questions that I want us to think about. Are we digitizing these images for researchers, for our the heads of our libraries who just want us to do digital things? Are we digitizing them for the public? If you are a librarian, you know that we do things for the public, right? We are custodians of our cultural heritage. Um, and if we are only making them accessible to people already in the know, then that passes as locked up as if we had given it over to a commercial company. So we need to collaborate not only between libraries and researchers, but also the public users to get us to look at our collections in that way and say, what do they need to know in order to be able to make this workable? And in order to do that, we need platforms that are collaborative. If you think about your digital assets um, and how they are being held and how they are being made visible, you have images, you have a catalog record, and if you want context, so all that thing where I go on, you need context, you need to talk about why Gutenberg is important and who John Marant is, there is no place in Content DM, there is no place in Lona, there is no place in the vast majority of platforms that we use to display our digital holdings to provide any sort of context for that. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to ask our presenters to come up front, and I'm going to try to summarize what I got out of all the conversations, which were excellent. Um, so I'm, I'm very much an activist, archivist. Um, that can be problematic for some people. Uh, so I have a tendency to um, bring up really uncomfortable um questions and I'm really pleased at some of the uh, comments that were made here because I think they really address um, the issues of this uh, this roundtable discussion and so that the whole notion of representation and access that I think all of you really talked about very well um, I, I think it's so important. So um, in, in Dan's conversation, I took away the idea of, of um, Harry Smith. Was it appropriation or appreciation? Is, you know, whether those were issues that people had with some of the comments that they were saying. And with um, Eleanor's uh, discussion. It was more about that too. What do we choose to represent? And I think Sarah say, says uh, her, her paper is talking about those issues too. What do we choose to represent in our um, institutions? And um, what Chuck was saying um, is also the, the silent voices. And I, and I think what I see also um, 
that is a thread running through these is there is material out there. We're just not mm -hmm. um, digitizing it. We don't see it as important. Um, we have people who are medievalists and classicists who don't even think that um, people of color, women, or um, the LGBT community has ever put out anything in those areas. So um, what the uh, funding agencies um, will fund are those things that we have tons of. I mean, I'm at Texas A&M, we have a whole Shakespeare department. So that is basically a digital project. So it is what do we think is important, what do we uh, see as important to represent. But I also think, and we, um, and nobody really talked about this, and I really would like to have this discussion too. Um, the whole notion of representation for me is also about the people. So um, we know for a fact as academics that when someone is coming to a PhD program, when someone is coming to a master's program, they are looking for people who they want to work with. If you don't have people in your institution who have knowledge of these other groups, then there's no uh, incentive really to um, also you know, make sure that we're representing in our collections, in our digitization, um, though that, that material. So I, I'm going to challenge people to think about that as part of the issue too. Do we have the personnel? Do we have the people who are in our institutions who can um, support or even advocate for um, diverse collections? So um, I'll open it up and ask people to respond to that. I wanted to build on something that Chuck mentioned. Um, you were discussing radical inclusion, right? Which I think, I'm like, hashtag radical inclusion. That's what I'm saying. That's not me. It's totally, I'm right. totally <laughs> that from someone else. So yeah, I need to read that text. But I think this really responds to Rebecca's uh, point. So we can think about radical inclusion in terms of, sort of the voices we include from the past in our scholarship. But I was also thinking, did anyone catch the hashtag I used on my last slide. Citation. Citation challenge. Does anyone know what that means? It's having diverse representation in whom you cite, right? Yeah. Indeed. That's so what we should all be doing. Yeah. yeah. So this is part, this is what I wanted to emphasize in response to Rebecca's point, which I think is incredibly important and we should talk more about. Um, so hashtag citation challenge is an initiative that the um, Journal of Critical Ethnic Studies began. It's really been inspired by the work of Sarah Arthur's. Um, the original feminist killjoy, um, and she's the person that really inspired me. I don't cite white men anymore. I mean, Boom. as an institution, I think it's important to emphasize Can that. So Ahmed always says, when I say I don't cite white men, that means I'm, there's an institution I'm refusing to sort of capitulate to. And why do I need to authorize? Like I could have, there's people I could cite for important influence on my work, 
but I chose, especially today, to emphasize like the female scholars that I'm building upon, and the female digitizers, and the female activists. This is work I'm building on um, without needing to legitimize the feminism through kind of male perspectives on archives, not that they're not valuable. Um, so I think that's one way, right? Thinking about radical inclusion, thinking about citation challenges um, at all levels is one tiny, tiny way that we can doing this work. And if I, if all of that is, is, is right, and I also think that when we talk about we have the people um, that we need to be more open than we as researchers and scholars have been to looking at people um, who are outside of the academies but who might also have expertise in something. So when I was trying to understand the relationships between the various versions of John Merritt's captivity narrative, and I'm working in my office, which is in my house, which is not attached to a big library, <laughs> I rely on Google heavily to sort of help me find my way into a topic. And the sources, the information that I could find about John Merritt were not from institutional websites, but were um, self-built, self-created representations and bibliographies from people of color. Um, and those are resources that I, I think to resonate to is we don't always, we perceive ourselves as experts, and we are in lots of ways, but that doesn't mean that we have a stronghold on expertise and that we can't find it in other ways as well. So we can sometimes look for people outside of our for, for me, I, I teach at a small overlock college. I'm the only musicologist in my department, um, which you know makes me very aware that students who come through here are really getting one <laughs> one perspective. They're not getting uh, quite the array. Um, and one thing I, I started doing with my intro to classical music class for non-majors um, was to turn it into more about research methods. And so one of the <coughs> projects I have them do is when we talk about Gershwin and Ellington, they pick one of the two uh, composers and have to uh, find an obituary in a, in a white press and an African-American mm -hmm. press. And then we can have a conversation about mm -hmm. coverage. What did you expect? Was that true? Start investigating you know, maybe uh, assumptions about different sources and, and whether or not they line up, but start looking at comparisons. Um, so I think I think even in, in classroom activities, the way we can build um, using research tools and digital um, uh, archives of newspapers or other periodicals uh, is another way to, to sort of promote this um, in a way that doesn't even necessarily have to change the curriculum necessarily without even a textbook. Um, you can you can work with what's there. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I agree with that. I'm, I'm trying to think of what I can say now that everyone else has made But uh, I think I would, I, would, I, I would tie it to teaching, I think, especially how I teach, right? Like, I started with David Dean and Jacob Christie, right? I tried to pay attention to people, people that, right, if you're talking about the assault in Fort Wagner, you have to talk about it. Like, you have to talk about the people in Massachusetts. But if you're talking about most military campaigns in the Civil War, right, you're most people don't talk about African Americans. And when I teach my classes, I very much try to drive home, like when I talk about the early republic, right? I don't think, okay, Hamilton's awesome, and Hamilton, like the play is awesome, right? But like, I try not to talk about Hamilton and Jefferson. <laughs> I try to talk about the people who are experiencing, whether it's African Americans, whether it's women, how do they fit into this narrative? So I think in many ways, we can kind of tie what you're asking people to do, right, with their research methods. Uh, and this is very specific, right? 
right, as a historian, uh, like how we teach about the past, how we present that to people, is to provide these different narratives. Like, I think that citation challenge is really interesting. I'm interested to see what my advisor would say if I tried to pull that. <laughs> he probably would be like, why did you include these sources? And I'd be like, well, hashtag citation challenge. <laughs> how that would go over, uh, especially because I'd use hashtag in an email. Uh, but I think, it's, I think it's really interesting to talk about how there's multiple levels to this, right? It's not just, oh, we should include. And I had a lot more stuff that I included in here talking about how, right, Frederick, Frederick Douglass, right? You can pull out Abraham Lincoln, right, Jefferson Davis, Alexander Stevens, because everybody quotes Alexander Stevens in that stupid speech. Um, uh, sorry, I don't like Alexander Stevens, if that's not apparent. Um, but I think there's multiple levels to the way we can do this idea of radical inclusion, whether it's uh, who we cite, whether it's how we teach about things, or what digital archives we put out there, or what we put on digital archives. Uh, and I think part of the solution that I did include is try to digitize as much stuff about African Americans. But I'm very much about, now I don't, my dissertation is an example of this. I don't like separating out the African American narrative because I don't think that's disingenuous, right? It's sticking it into a separate chapter is just <coughs> not what I'm trying to do. I'm rambling. Like, I'm just, um, <coughs> yes. So, well, thank you. Because if anyone was in Harvard a week or so ago, you know what I said. Um, but um, I did have a, I have a digital humanities challenge that people, I do at my own institution, which is there's a lot of stuff that uh, Sarah rightly said is online. And I think in terms of the disciplines and how they're distributed, there's a lot, we have a long way to go with those as well, right? So um, I think the fodder for DH, or digital scholarship, whatever you want to call it, is what's already digitized and drilling into it and asking it questions and building a really cool model of menus or whatever, right? Um, that's fantastic. But if we really want to do two things, one, not um, deprofessionalize archivists and librarians as technocrats that just serve some resources. We are your, we are your intellectual partners. Exactly. And two, to uh, deploy and employ what we're trying to do in building diverse agents in our profession along with you is to start a DH project through the lens of revealing a hidden voice, not exploring already digitized thousands and thousands of what I would argue is re perpetuating online what I think we're all trying to dissemble on some way, and not to dissemble to destroy, but to reassemble with inclusivity. Uh, I always talk, like to say I don't call people out, I call them in, but when I call them in, I'm pretty loud. <laughs> and, um, but it's, I think the DH strategy at Penn State is, and I, I say this when, People come and talk to me and say they want to do a DH project. I'm like, great, go find something that isn't digitized. Thanks. Let's start there, and right. then make your project. It's going to take a little longer, but you really are going to get the new and, and interesting and provocative inquiry into the 20th century, into the 19th century, in a very different way than focusing on all of these uh, marginalized communities as the subjects rather than the authors. Mm -hmm. And I, I would just love to make that statement because I love what you said and I mm -hmm. think that if we all as a community, I love that the faculty are here and the students are here and librarians are here, as a community that we make some of these priorities across our fields as an arc, mm -hmm. then I think we will make more change that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And please always ask questions that make everyone uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm so pro that. So. But I do have a question. So my question is for you, um, and, and Professor Reeves. Mm -hmm. um, and you said something beautiful. You said, uh, I'm not doing homework. I'm actually taking a lot of notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said, uh, um, 
At any rate, it was really good, and I wrote it down. Oh, you said there's um, an emancipatory project rooted in feminist principles, and it was such a great line. I just I wish you would just unpack that a little bit, just that, that beautiful poetics into practical. Okay, so I think, um, and I really have to sort of, again, like, re- like Jacqueline Wadamon, I found, she's incredible, I was pushing very about like, feminist digital practice, and was like, oh, that's so much of what I wanted to say, isn't it? And is rather than saying that as a problem, who was it? Jacqueline Wadamont, uh, W-E-R-N-I-N-O-N-T, and she's a recent article, I think it's a digital sports yeah. Um And I found that article, and I was like, wow, she's really articulating so much of what I was hoping to say. And rather than seeing that as an issue, I decided that that was fantastic and demonstrating, like, right, with the feminist move. Oh, this is amazing. Another woman scholar is doing this work I'm interested in. How can I build upon this? How can I showcase her work in kind of bringing in my own perspective? Um, and in fact, even like the model of kind of practice was like asking these big questions, giving sort of parallel two examples as of how she structures that article. I really recommend it. Um, and she, one of the questions she asks is um, about sort of, you know, what's like purely feminist as opposed to sort of a more broader kind of accessibility or wider representation. Um, and I think what I was trying to say with that phrase is that like I'm both interested in these kind of intersectional emancipation projects. I think we're thinking about all of these things, right? Um, but then also thinking about that like Feminism actually still has something to say to digital humanities, and there should be like a feminist digital humanities, um, which I think very much emphasizes collaboration, uh, and I think it emphasizes both sort of right the recovery projects. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to dismiss kind of feminist recovery projects and women writers. Uh, Michelle Levy's at this conference, and she and one of her graduate students, Kenny's, presented on the women's print history project, which is really uncovering a lot of. Sort of completely forgotten women authors, editors, translators, printers, publishers. Um, and that work is very, very necessary. Um, but I think what I'm arguing for is that it's we can't just sort of put it out there. We have to think about, I think it's going back to Sarah's point about like not just like digitizing, but like how are we doing it, how are we making it accessible, what context are we providing, um, and thinking about like the tools, right? Like that's such a feminist principle, right? Like, well, I, you can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, right? What are you doing? I love that quote. So I think it's thinking of back, but like these tools are not neutral, mm-hmm. right? Like, digital, like thinking about TDI, thinking about transcription, um, it's not neutral. It's never neutral, it's always political. Um, and I want to start thinking about not just what we're digitizing, but how we're digitizing it. And I think you can't, you can't think about this separately, right? And the second we start <coughs> including more of this in digital archives, our tools are gonna have to accommodate it. And we have, we, you can't just think about it. You can't just sort of assume that it's gonna happen. You have to actually sort of think about it. Thank you. Does that begin to answer your question? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. This is, I believe, more of a statement than a question, although I would also be interested to see how it intersects with any of your scores or not. It's also to, I think, foreground more, all as many as possible, the layers of decisions that have contributed to the survival of different sources or not. Because in some cases where we have only one extant quote, such that we know of, although yes, often there are other ones hiding in somebody's closet because either they're valued in families but not necessarily valued outside. But if we can foreground more those kinds of selective decisions and the, and the 
preservative actions that are necessary for those individual things. It can help some other people understand their import a little bit more. It's like, yes, we don't have those all those copies of the Gutenberg, we only have one copy of this, but that's because it had to go through all of these other things. I think that's a, a great point. I mean, one of the things that what I got sort of curious about what was being digitized and what it wasn't, um, there's a Europeana study from 2015, so just a couple of years ago, Europeana is this you know, cultural heritage research organization. <coughs> they did a study of um, cultural heritage institutions, like how many of you have a digitization program? And of the ones they surveyed, 80% were digitizing stuff, which is fabulous. And then they asked, how many of you have a digitization strategy? And 40% of them had a strategy. So there's a, there's, a, there's a huge room for improvement before we can even get to that great point of sort of like highlighting all of the decisions behind what we've done. There's some aspect of critical decision making and sort of saying, like, why are we doing this and why would we do this if we could do that? Those are questions we, I think, partly just the history of imaging stuff. We just have thought of, oh, it's super exciting, but we're at a moment now where I think we can sort of. Um, the gentleman back there, you had your hand up. Me? Yes, at one time. <laughs> <laughs> I had something to say on that. Oh, okay. I was going to say, actually, that's one of the things last night that like, got the cutting room floor of like, oh man, I want to talk about like why are there so few African American sources, like very broadly. Uh, but I think that's a really important thing is to pay attention to the fact that whether it's lack of education or how people right, choose to remember the Civil War era is the white narrative that remembered, that's remembered. So like kind of, like you said, foregrounding those decisions are really important. It could be a way to highlight that. And, and I'd like to add something to that. Um, I think that there, there isn't really a lot. I mean, I've worked at one of the largest institutions, the Amistad Research Center at Tulane University. Amistad's collections are amazing, and they run the trajectory. It is one of the leading resources, archives for African Americans, but not just African Americans, the American Missionary Association. Mm -hmm. You really can't study the education of minority groups in America without looking at that collections, those collections there, but people don't really, who's digitizing that? I mean, I was a part of a digital project, but who's using those materials? And, and they have wonderful collections. Schoenberg has wonderful collections. Howard has wonderful collections, but they're not being mined mm -hmm. in yeah. the same way as we're doing with other things. But, Go ahead. And I, I, would, I would also just add, like, um, I mean, that's a huge part of this, this Sarah Smith project, right? Um, and this is especially a problem with uh, dealing with commercial uh, stuff. So, like, these commercial recordings that were made in the 20s and 30s, um, so many of them, I mean, because, you know, people want to buy the new hit song, all these things kind of ended up in these back catalogs. And then during World War II, they all got melted down into shellac, the war effort. Um, and so, you know, like the the number of extant sources um, of the stuff is small. Um, there's a similar problem in film music studies. The entire MGM uh, music catalog uh, is in a landfill under a golf course in Los Angeles because when they got rid of the studio system, they just thought, oh, we don't need any of this anymore. Mm -hmm. so. yeah. oh, but the gentleman, but then I'll come to you. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, thank you for all these <laughs> talks that are really uh, thought provoking and, and interesting. And thank you to Sarah for giving me the inspiration once more um, to go back to my institution and make another uh, 
run and getting our activity narratives digitized mm -hmm. because we are the place that should do this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I've been trying to do this for three years, and it leads me to a point um, which, which sometimes gets overlooked, which is just the contingency of the physical objects is part of this, too. Um, the captivity narratives we have and the indigenous uh, linguistics material we have is 19th century. Um, Where is that? It's bad paper. What, what institution? What the Newbury mean? Library in oh, Chicago. Okay. Um, and things that are bad paper that are type bindings um, mm -hmm. uh, are deemed unsuitable for digitization by our conservation lab and would be by any conservation lab because they will fall apart. Um, so um, those contingencies and the contingencies of labor, of, of the hard work that goes in at every step, intellectual and physical, of digitizing this stuff is really tricky. Um, and I'm wondering if anybody here has um, thoughts about navigating that or alternative ways we might do this without uh, imposing on the physical objects that are later than the early modern period that need to be digitized as well. I mean, I started right with the Google Books, right? Like thinking about foregrounding the labor of like who actually digitizes and what that physical process involves. Um, I'm not the first person to have been like, have you seen the hands in Google Books? Like, have you seen, and like, whose hands are these and why are they wearing this little, like, they look like condoms, right? Like, my fingers. <laughs> like, right, and like, I have all these, there's all these like online discussions about like, why are they wearing those? Like, are those actually, like, like, some of their fingers aren't covered. Like, what it like what people are very interested in like sort of the rationale of kind of like how is the text preserved? Um, I mean, the, I think I don't really have a response to this other than think about like right, like, what does it mean if we destroy and think about materiality, physicality, which I'm obviously very interested in. What does it mean if we destroy the physical artifact to produce like a virtual facsimile of it? And like, at what point is that? Like, I think that's like deeply unjust, right? Like, I'm like, we're all like, all of there's sort of collective like leaning back that just happened yeah. across the room. Um, I think someone kind of said, "Oh, what?" Sorry. If I could just respond, I actually have a thought for Will on um, argument. Then we need to talk because I actually have a conversation with somebody else in the neighborhood that I'm going to have soon. So we can gang up on them. Um, so, like, we're going to collaborate on this. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this stuff, I really am used to it, so I can like early modern materials, right? Because that was how I trained, and they're astonishingly sturdy, and so I'm incredibly sympathetic to the 19th and early 20th century folks who just, let alone this sort of moving into stuff. But this, if it's too fragile to be digitized, is it possible that those are in need of? A conservation treatment to stabilize And then if you're doing that, you digitize, once you help them dismount, you just digitize them as just not objects. And so they're, they're, we haven't really talked about money. Yes. All of this is really expensive. We exactly. get less funding from we libraries and we universities, get less funding from the government than we used to. And That's true. we have to raise our own monies and we are dependent on the sort of you know, like what clear decides is its priorities that year. Although hidden collections maybe would be really good. Okay. Right. So true. all I, I I agree. I mean like I just decide to be cranky and ask for the impossible because if I'm gonna ask for things, why not ask for a new universe? Let me let me say something real quick. So I'm glad so that um, that Sonia mentioned the NHPRC and the and my um, appointment to it. Uh, that is one agency that you don't see enough 
collections that are of people of color, of women, uh, asking for funds. They have, we have millions of dollars, and I'm on uh, the selection, I'm on the commission, and I'm encouraging people of color, the LGBTQ community, uh, women, to submit proposals. We were, uh, the Congress, this person in office, uh, tried to zero out our budget, but Congress has basically said no, and they gave us an extra $10 million. We have money in NHPRC. We fund these kinds of projects. So I'm putting it out there. Submit. And what you were saying before about these vendors who take, you know, these collections and then they put up a paywall, NHPRC doesn't do that. Exactly. It's, it's, it's your money, first of all. So consider that. Uh, this, this lady has it. IMLS, NHPRC, clear. You have melon. You have this. You have a question? Yeah, um, I'm a librarian also. I'm at Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, Madison. And we have in house digitizing, and it's an extremely slow and expensive process. So, a couple of years ago, we partnered with a company um, called Reveal Digital. And Reveal Digital has a completely different model from the, the behemoths, the EBSCOs, and the ProQuest. They do, uh, we had them digitize a collection with a massive amount of work we have to be able to do it in-house. Uh, they're funded by research institutions who put up sort of seed money, and then in a few years it's going to go open access, which is why we chose to do it. And they have done, um, they have a project called Independent Voices. They've done feminist collections, LGBT, Sally Bingham, Minority, GI Press, Right Wing Press, and they're doing a, a Ku Klux Klan uh, archive. But they're an unusual company because they are going, uh, there's some initial money that they need to raise to do this. But they take care of the commissions. And mm. the stuff we were doing was 1950s to 80s, and I never could have gotten the copyright clearance without that company to do it. Um, and without Scanner Jim came and did the work in the basement uh, and all their equipment. Uh, so it's, a, it's an unusual company. And I want people to know why. Yes. I have a question which I think sort of builds on your question and some of the responses, which is um, sort of about <coughs> one, one of the things I'm sort of hearing is, is that maybe we have in some of the leadership vacuum, right? In that we, don't, we have platforms that don't allow for the context <coughs> of servicing 
that there are things that we know we would like to digitize, but perhaps are not getting digitized, or that people have been advocating to have digitized, but that there doesn't seem to be buying at the top. Um, but we have multiple copies of things that are quote unquote very famous. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in certain disciplines. So is I mean, I guess part of my question is, is that the case? Is, is this partly a leadership issue? And if so, what can we as a community do to try to change that? I mean, I, I, I don't always, like, I, I agree with the problem of, like, a lack of strategy and a lack of leadership, but I think we also want to think like, about not, like, a top-down approach, right? Like, none of us want, like, sort of universities or institutions or funding bodies to kind of sort of dictate kind of models that would always sort of, like, fall apart the second they actually come down to the ground, because then, like, there isn't a one-size-fits-all. But I think, right, like the problem is we need, there's all this like local response and there's a lot of grassroots movements of digitization, but it's not getting up to the top. Um, and I think it's not, and I think this is where we're thinking about the like, collaboration, right? Like the way to build leadership, again, right? Like thinking about like, sort of how can this be like a feminist project and a mandatory project? It's not about kind of like a top-down approach. We just need one person in charge that's gonna tell us what to do. But thinking about like, how does, the way that like rock um, it isn't really obvious, like my background is very like union oriented, my partner's a union organizer, I have an labor historian. Um, right, like, we need like this sort of like, like the way that like you build leadership and strategy is not from the top down, from the bottom up, thinking about local grassroots movements that are able through collaboration, working together, pooling resources, right, let's go back to the money, pooling labor, able to build something up. Um, and I think something like this company organization shows that, like, how that's possible, right? That company is enabled by a network, right? Thinking about networks rather than hierarchies. Um, but that might be very, very idealistic of me to say that. Uh, I also appreciate the comments everyone's making, and my mind back here, like, fireworks <laughs> going off. Um, because I think um, talking about the feminist aspect had made me think. Um, I think there's a lot that we can get from feminist epistemology, from the ethics of care, um, and from unemployed philosophers. I don't know if there's any other philosophy people in the room, but I was thinking to myself that after they digitized the past master's database, which was done a long time ago and was a really early project, the philosophers are kind of done with digitizing. Okay? Like they have the stuff they need. All the white men have been scanned. <laughs> <laughs> with and there are professionals who could like do that for really cheap that we should be tapping into. I also wanted to bring up another feminist thing about the labor. I work in a very small, actually I work in two special collections libraries, three days in one and two days in the other. They haven't had a new position in either since 1983. I am the special collections cataloger hired to replace the special collections cataloger who retired, but they got a two-for-one deal on me because mm -hmm. I'm also a digital archivist. Mm -hmm. And so if we do any digital projects, I have to be involved in the question I have is, how many hours a week do you think I should work, <laughs> right? So I also agree about looking for these voices that are not being heard, and in both of the collections I work in, the one in particular is just flooded with non-white male, non-dominant voices. And 
I like sleeping, you know. I occasionally enjoy brushing my teeth or taking a shower. So I don't know when I'm supposed to engage in those kinds of projects. And another thing, this all comes down to money. What I'd like to see the NHPRC or some other organizations throw money at is if they can build scanners that are this big, right, that doctor's offices have and they throw your cards through, why can't we build a scanner that works like a sheet of paper <laughs> that you can put in a closed book? Like, seriously, the work has been done. We just need somebody to put it together and sell it. That technology exists. So I, these questions about, oh, we can't digitize it because it's too tight to I'm like, are you kidding me? What century do you think this is? <laughs> okay, so these are just some thoughts I've been having. <laughs> I think that um, we could get the philosophers you know, to stop arguing about the comments or second critique or something and instead throw some of their knowledge towards the ethical problems that we're having. And I also wanted to comment my organization had to use Gale to digitize some stuff recently, and I know you're like horrified. They <laughs> the same deal. It belongs to them for five years. We can still use it in our library. We can put 15% of it online, and in five years, it goes public. And I'm like, it's either that or no access. So I'm going to have to, you know, dance with the devil for a little while. Well, time. I think what she's saying about leadership, I, I, and this, I'm coming back to personnel. Mm -hmm. You need to, and we, we really aren't talking enough about that, we need to have the personnel in place who will advocate for this. And however that is done, whether it's at um, the dean level, whether it's at the um, department level, you know, we really do. It is a issue of leadership in many ways. Right. And if you just, like, one thing about the work, how, like, is it okay for you to sleep? Yes. <laughs> I, 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 when I when I had a job that paid me from a, you know, when I was working outside not for myself I guess um, when I was working at the Boulder um, I used to say we were like any sort of small organization or even large organization expected to give everything to the job because we do this because we love it right mm -hmm. like you don't say to bankers well you do it because you love it right and there's a lot of pressure to And I think that if we all just said, nope, you are paying me to work till five o'clock, you want me to work after that, you're gonna have to pay me more. I know none of us can bring ourselves to do it because we do love taking care of the books. I know I regularly I regularly tell my supervisor that I will do both jobs when she doubles my salary, but until such time. <laughs> yeah, because, like if we all do that, then we get back to the leadership stuff, then leadership is gonna have to say, Yeah. All right, well, this is either going to happen or it's not going to happen, but it's not going to happen on the backs of our. I think one of the problems is that uh, since we get thrown outside of the faculty thing, no, no deans are librarians in most cases. No. So we don't actually value what the library is doing. Well, there are some. There are some. Some large institutions, the librarian yeah. is a dean, but in general, yeah. academic deans are never librarians. Yeah. And they control the purse strings, and so they're like, "Oh, look, you warehouse books. That's all." I, I was just going to say, like, I think, I think one of the other things that I'm now starting to think about, some of the works on the wall of um, pop culture, um, is, is we're talking about labor and, and access and sort of resources. Like, I'm thinking about like fan culture, especially oh, yeah. so much of that is online. Um, you know, things like set lists for concerts. Um, you know, there are these databases that are, are sort of sprung up, and it would be great to see um, some sort of like partnership where where academics are, are working with fans to think about creating a searchable database for 
uh, set list for, for, for various artists. Um, it's sustainable. It's sustainable. Yeah. It would have the oversight that the academics could bring, but also uh, engage and think about use it. And use, yeah. Yeah, yeah. again, your, your concept of a usable yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, you had a question. Yeah. Next to your question about leadership, and I was thinking, framing that in a little different way. Um, I'm going to quote Borges, or just invoke the Borges line that you know, when the Universal Library came into being, the first reaction was wanting universal happiness, right? And then Roger Chartier will go on and say, well, then everyone became bitter because they realized all the books would go away. <laughs> um, and I think we didn't realize when digitization started that we would be following a similar trajectory. There's this extravagant happiness about creating an immediately accessible universal library. I don't know a scholar who doesn't love looking at <laughs> digitized images in their pajamas at any hour of the day to do the kind of primary work they used to have to get trouble finding. Right? It, it is, I, we cannot do our work without digital images. But we're now navigating a world that has a digital library that has created representations of a certain kind. And we didn't know we were doing it. This is ideological, the effect of ideological and institutional pressure that gets us to 10 first folios and 25 Googlers. Um, and in addition, this issue of like, representation and um, staff, you know, staffing. I lead this, this, this double life. I've been able to go to very good schools, and I've just been commuting to Ann Arbor to get my library degree while living in Detroit. And living, having that happen to me, like I'm in one place during the day and another place after, you know, it, it has taken me a long time to understand what it feels like to have the things that affect me and move me, not be the things that affect and move other people, even though those things are very, very, very important. I needed an education in Octavia Butler, mm. and I got it because of where I lived, mm -hmm. and not because of what I studied. Mm -hmm. And I am not the advocate for Octavia Butler. Someone else is the advocate. And, you know, I know Huntington just did a marvelous exhibition yes. on her. Yes. Um, <laughs> and in addition to leadership to address these issues of representation, we we always have to continue to do that work. And I'm okay. thinking about how do I, how do I make sure that my neighbors and colleagues in Detroit mm -hmm. go to a website at U of M and see something that says to them, I am affirmed, I am welcome, right. there's a piece of history there for me. <coughs> and if, you know, if white consciousness can't get it right away, you know what? U of M's okay with that. We're gonna we're gonna let the white people struggle for <laughs> because that is that is only fair. Right? For instance. And so that's really what I wanted to float out. I think we can all do a little more work in just making sure that the say an institutional representation of a digital collection feels like it welcomes everybody. Okay. Just, I have two tokens. I'm using my second one. Um, the <laughs> leadership thing. I, I have a huge staff. I have a large budget. I'm fortunate to have had a huge endowment, and I know that. 
I'm one of two women of color running a tier one institution at Special Collections in this country, yeah. in the middle of central Pennsylvania. You figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I love my colleagues. Uh, I love what they're doing. And I'm going, so I walk around, all of you, except Sarah, I'm sorry you work in your house, but you have one for your home. But those of you who are affiliated with institutions have an institution strategic effing plan. <laughs> I have the institutional plan, Penn State's plan, and I walk around with it all day long because there is a fundamental tenet for diversity, inclusivity, agency, voice, diverse perspectives, and, and democratizing our personnel. And when anyone asks me how I make priority decisions, I, I have created a digitization readiness plan. I didn't. I have very smart people who work with me. And we, what we talk about that readiness plan. And, and my, my, always my answer is, what do I want special collections to look like online? When someone walks into mm -hmm. um, digitally into my special collections, does it look like a bunch of paintings <laughs> of just one group? that I'm saying this is our sphere. What do I want it to look like? And we have more capacity to do that online. So if you want, also leaders have a budget. Um, talk to your leadership. Um, I, I, I think my team, I don't know if they're lucky, but they got me anyway. But I, I want to make sure <laughs> that I use what money I have to pay for for digitization. And really, it's processing. It's readiness rather than, because it's another unit that digitizes, right? And, and it's really at the descriptive practices. Like, I push really hard. I'm not about to put crappy description online because 20 years ago, someone used some horrible language to describe a group. Mm. So I want to make sure. And that's not on anyone's. I'm not charging anyone. That's just reality that we live with. And, and so when we have things like illegal aliens or Negro or whatever in our, in our descriptions, we need to think about that before we put it online because really we're putting ourselves into a global community mm -hmm. and tell your leaders to to walk around with that strategic plan to ask the questions and to use some of their budget to do what you just said that's i mean i mean just and i hope that i can do that i don't want to get fired on a tenure track but um, <laughs> but i want to do that because i think um it's it's not it's a vocation it's not a job but mm -hmm. don't suffer from vocational all get your rest get your sleep and know that tomorrow is another day you know just keep working Sorry, <laughs> I, so, I'm in, in the uh, interest of uh, increasing the inclusivity of, uh, of, of voices and sources online, Sarah, could you give a shout out to your list? I mean, you gave us a list here of the things that are missing from the other modern courts. Oh, yeah, that's right. But you've got a website where these are, are, are mm -hmm. this, this is the missing, the missing digital uh, titles. Uh, and I'd like to suggest that you've got, that that, that could be a model for those uh, who are working in other fields. Uh, do I have a list of do, Well, that's that? my I question. Thought I, I thought I had a list just for me. I had realized I had tweeted out that Maybe. I had <laughs> <laughs> that list public for those of us with collections that have yeah. that could, in fact, digitize those objects. Yeah. And I would, I I would suggest that maybe the community could help uh, yeah. institutions yeah, in the I same way by, Developing by saying something. what's missing from the corpus. We need a blank. Yes, 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 yes,
This has been wonderful. Um, and can we give our panel a <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.